we tried the head mic, and I know that it's my head, but it didn't seem to work, even though it had, had some repairs done on it. So we're back to a lapel mic. Um, I do have a record of destroying them too, so they might need to totally um, re-equip the sound desk this um, after today. Uh, we're going to be um, continuing with our theme of modern heresies. Um, there's a little bit of a twist with this one um, because even though it's an ancient heresy, it somehow or other gets recycled. And like most of the heresies, we actually find that they were in existence in the early centuries of the church and uh, even in the first century. And so some of the writings of Scripture were actually addressing heresy, even though they probably didn't have a name then. So we're going to be looking at a heresy that um, has been around for a long time, uh, even before Pelagius. Uh, he gives it the name. But this heresy was there in the New Testament. We see evidence of it there, and it's still with us today across the church. I'm not saying necessarily this church, but I'm using the church in the broad sense of the word. And there's some, there are some things that we need to be very careful about, we need to be well instructed in, so that we don't fall for this heresy. You'll notice Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, because when Pelagius was branded a heretic by a number of the great church councils, uh, in the 400s, um, it sort of revived with a different name. Uh, it was tweaked a bit to make it more acceptable and it became known as semi-Pelagianism. Now, why am I taking this one up? Well, a little before Christmas, I actually engaged in some online discussion slash debate about infant baptism. I don't often do that, but I just felt that I needed to on this particular occasion, responding to an article. And uh, what was interesting to me was that the comments that were made in response, um, all very gracious, I might say, whether they were for infant baptism or against infant baptism, almost without exception, they started off by saying, babies are innocent. Babies are innocent. And that caught my attention. Babies are innocent. I know we, we talk that way um, because they're just sort of like helplessly lying there doing their little thing of, you know, sucking and taking in and putting out, basically. Uh, so, and we say, oh, look, they're just so innocent. But theologically, they are not innocent. And this was actually a, dis a theological discussion that was going on. And almost without exception, people were saying, babies are innocent. Let me backtrack and tell you a little bit about Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk. 
Not sure of the exact date of his birth, but it was about 354, which happens to be the same year in which Augustine was born. And as we'll notice in a moment, they actually got to uh, lock horns a little bit. So he was a British monk. He moved to Rome, which was sort of like the centre of church stuff that was going on at the end of the 4th century. He was absolutely amazed at the way in which Christians in Rome were excusing their behaviour by saying, oh, but that's just my sinful nature. And so that got this theologian, this very clever man, thinking about this issue. He moved from Rome, when Rome was under attack, he moved from Rome to Palestine, spent some time there, and then moved to North Africa, where he came in contact with Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. Now, he's described, that is Pelagius, is described like this. Let, let, me, give you, let me give you a quote. There was a 19th century uh, church historian um, by, by the name of Philip, what was it now? Philip Schaff. And he actually gathered probably as much information as anybody about Pelagius. And this is what he had to say. He said that Pelagius was a man of clear intellect, mild disposition, learned culture, and spotless character. He went on to say, even Augustine, with all his abhorrence of his doctrines, repeatedly speaks respectfully of Pelagius. So Pelagius was a man of, of intellect, but also a man of mild disposition. We, we're told that he was a great orator. And whereas Augustine probably wrote most of his stuff down, we have a lot of it on record, we don't have so much of what Pelagius believed in written form. It was more seen from, from the opposition of Augustine. And I'll alternate between Augustine and August, um, Augustine. You know, everybody sort of has a different idea how to pronounce it, whether you're American or Australian, we're in the middle somewhere. So, one of the problems, what really brought it to a head was a prayer that Augustine regularly prayed. And he prayed regularly, O God, command what you would and grant what you do command. Let me give you that again. This was the prayer, a famous prayer of Augustine. O God, command what you would. Now, none of us would have any problem with that. We could go to God and say, Lord, you tell me whatever you want to say. You tell me whatever you want me to do. That's what Augustine was saying. Oh God, command what you would. The part that 
Pelagius took exception to was the second part of the prayer where he continued and grant what you do command. So Augustine was saying, Lord, tell me what you want me to do, but you'll have to give me the ability to do it. Pelagius says, no, if God commands us to do something, then we must be able to do it. We must have the capacity to do what God asks us to do. And this is where they, uh, they sort of started to lock horns. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a summary. This is according to Philip Schaff, how he uh, summarised what uh, Pelagius believed. Adam was created mortal and would have died even if he had not sinned. Second, children come into the world in the same condition in which Adam was before the fall. So he would say, children are innocent, are guiltless. They come into the world in the same condition in which Adam was before the fall. Third, the human race neither dies in consequence of Adam's fall, nor rises again in consequence of Christ's resurrection. Fourth, unbaptized children, as well as others, are saved. When he says others, we assume it's meant those who are baptized. Unbaptized and unbaptized, unbaptized and baptized are saved. Number five, the law, as well as the gospel, leads to the kingdom of heaven. And finally, in Schaff's uh, concise expression of what Pelagius believed, even before Christ, there were sinless men. See, Pelagius believed that we have the capacity as human beings to live a sinless life. If God asks us to be holy then we must have the capacity to be able to live a holy life. And so that was how Pelagius saw things. And of course, if you know anything about Augustine, you know that he had a different idea about that. So we're going to have a look this morning at how this, this heresy might be expressed even today in the church. And we're going to have a look at, first of all, Pelagianism and sin. Now, there are a lot of things about this that we won't have any problem with. But as we get to the part of this section, I'm going to, I'm going to ruffle a few feathers. I'm going to put something out there that might make you take, a, take a, a deep breath or a second breath. So be ready for it. You see, Pelagian didn't seem to have a an understanding of sin and sins. That is, sin the root and sins the fruit. Sin being the nature with which we are born, the sinful nature, and sins being what is produced by that sinful nature. The belief that we are born innocent and society shapes us 
to be sinful. Pelagius would say, yes, many people sin, most people sin, but all they're doing is basically using Adam as a model. And they follow on and do the sort of things that Adam did. And so they become sinful. And of course, most of you, I'm sure, would find trouble with that expression. Particularly when we think of a verse like this in, um, in Psalm 51 and verse 5, where David prays and he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is recognizing that from, from conception, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. He was guilty before God as a sinner, even from conception. Now I'm going to take a reading, and it's in Romans chapter 5, and uh, I want you to notice, and I'll try and highlight as we go through this reading, chapter 5, verse 12 down to 21, some expressions of Scripture that would oppose what Pelagius believed. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Did you get that? Just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, that is Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for, listen, many died through one man's trespass. Much more having the grace of God, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. I'm going to jump down to verse 17. For if, listen, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I'm going to jump down to verse 19 now. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, that is, by Christ's obedience many will be made righteous. And so that continues on in that vein down to verse 21. That is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5. So, if we really believe that, you ready for your feathers to be ruffled? If we really believe that, every little baby that's conceived, every baby that appears in this world is a sinner, has inherited 
Adam's fallen nature. You see, the doctrine of original sin does not just refer to the first sin that Adam, that Adam did, that Adam, um, where Adam sinned. The doctrine of original sin refers to that being continued on in the nature, inherited in the nature of every human being that comes into creation, into the world. That's what original sin is. It's not just the first sin that Adam committed. It's the result of that sin, or total depravity, as it is often known. Now, the difficult concept is this. If every baby that is born, or conceived for that matter, has a sin nature, what happens to them if they die? Now, I don't speak with uh, insensitivity on this matter because Adele and I lost two babies that we were not able to hold. And some of you have had the sad experience of losing babies or children at a young age. But let's grapple with this truth. If a baby dies, they're not innocent, they're guilty. That baby was, I've got your attention, haven't I? That baby was born a sinner. Nobody has, a trouble, has any problem with that. They've inherited the Adamic nature, the sin nature. So they're guilty. How do we handle this? Where's, how do we handle this tension? It's not what we want to believe. It's not what most of us will say. We say, well, of course, if a baby dies, they go straight to the arms of Jesus. That's the way we thought. Now, before you get too burred up, let me, let me continue on a little with this, but I want you to grapple with that. It's easier to say, yeah, of course I believe in original sin. Of course I believe that everybody is shapen in iniquity. Everybody is born a sinner. Of course I believe that. That's what the Bible teaches. Okay, well, let's grapple with that. Let's grapple with it. I look for a few strands, and that's all I can find, a few strands of truth in Scripture that might help me to believe what I want to believe. Now, that's a little bit dangerous, but I want to walk you through it, all right? Because for some of you, this will be important. 2 Samuel Chapter 12, verse 23, we have the account in that chapter of um, just earlier on, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and the baby that was born out of that union was very, very sick and David was mourning and praying that the baby might be revived, but the baby died. And David said this, 2 Samuel 12, 23, I shall go to him but he will not return to me. I shall go to him. Now, where was David going? David was going to be with the Lord. And he says, he understands, I will go to that baby, indicating that David believed that baby that had died 
even though the baby had been born out of a sinful union, that baby had, been, had gone to be with God. And David says, well, when I die, I will go there too. The baby's not going to return to me. Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews 9.22 says, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So I had a look at that. And trying to discover, so what was it under the law that was not purified by blood? Well, we actually find that an impoverished Israelite, instead of bringing a lamb as a sin offering, or even two pigeons or turtle doves, could actually bring a tenth of an ether of fine flour as his offering. It was not a blood offering. It was an exception for an impoverished Israelite. We also find in the book of Numbers that the, after the incident of the rebellion of Korah and, uh, there was, and all his company were, uh, were lost, they perished, we find there that actually without blood there was a, um, there was a, a way of, an, of covering that, the nation or the people at that time. And then there were two other incidents in the book of Numbers in chapter 31. But they seem to be the only exceptions under the law whereby anything was not actually covered by blood, was not uh, purified by blood. And so I, I'm left to wonder, if that is the case, is there a way that God can take a baby, not innocent, actually guilty, but is there any way that God can take that baby to be with him? And when I speak about babies, let me also include people who do not have the mental capacity to see the glory of God or to understand the ways of God or that sort of thing. There is one other verse that I cling on to, Psalm 119, verse 68, and it simply says, the psalmist says, you are good and do good. It's a little bit like what Abraham said when he was, when he was dialoguing with God about the destruction of Adam, he ended, the destruction of Sodom, he actually said, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And so in a sense, I have to take my hands off the theological argument and I have to say, I know God will do the right thing. I just have to step back. Now, to help us here, I want to take the time to read another quote and I'll finish with this section. And this is the longest section you might be pleased to know. This is a quote from Desiring God article by a man by the name of Matt Penman. And uh, in this article, this is what he writes. I'll just read it to you. In light of these things, some have held that God saves some infants who die and not others. They point that this seems most consistent with the doctrines of election and original sin. John Piper and many others, however, believe that there is 
one more biblical strand of evidence which must be considered. This evidence leads us to conclude that God saves all infants who die. In a funeral service several years ago for an infant, Dr. Piper summarised the basis of his conclusion. Jesus says in John 9 and 41, to those who were offended at his teaching and asked if he thought they were blind, he said, if you were blind, you would not have had sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. In other words, says Piper, if a person lacks the natural capacity to see the revelation of God's will or God's glory, then that person's sin would not remain. God would not bring that person into final judgment for not believing what he had no natural capacity to see. However, what we must, that's end of quote. However, what we must remember, whatever happens with children, it is not because they're innocent. God, in his grace, in his mercy, we leave it to him. I do believe, let me say, I do believe on the basis, I think, of flimsy evidence, admittedly, I do believe that babies that die go to be with God. I don't understand it, I don't know how, but that's what I do believe quite sincerely. You see, as parents, as grandparents, one of the things that, in light of all of this, one of the things that we must be diligent to do is to teach our children the Word of God. Our children need to be taught the Word of God because that is the seed from which the life grows. Timothy, we're told, was taught from infancy the Holy Scriptures which were able to make him wise unto salvation. And the time came when Paul and his companion visited Timothy's hometown when he was a young man and the seed, the seed actually bore fruit and Timothy was saved. So parents, I implore, I implore of you, teach your children the Scriptures from infancy. They are never too young. They are never too young to start teaching them the Word of God. As Peter tells us, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That's what we have to plant in the hearts of our children. I've talked now about Pelagianism and salvation and it somewhat flows on and so I won't need to spend a lot of time. But I want to ask you a question to start. First question, two questions. First one, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I want you to ask yourself that. Are you a Christian? My second question is this. How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are saved? 
you would agree, I'm sure, with these statements. I cannot save myself. I cannot contribute to my salvation. No one else can contribute to my salvation. Only God can save me. So I ask that second question again. How do you know that you're saved? I.e., a Christian. Listen to this description of salvation. 1 John 12, 13. 1 John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, that's Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Now listen, this is how a person gets saved, or born again. Who were born, not of blood. That means not by natural descent, and that's how some versions put it. Not by natural descent nor of the will of the flesh. That would probably talk about the desire to procreate. So we have some religious groups or some even some churches perhaps and they say, well, what we want to do is we want to have a lot of children and we'll grow the church because we have a lot of children and they'll grow and, and they'll become Christians. So not, that, not that way, not by the will of the flesh. And it goes on to say, nor of the will of man. That's of man's own volition, not our own will. This is how a person gets saved. That's how John tells us a person gets saved, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man or the individual, but of God. But of God. Salvation is God's work, not mine. I can't contribute to it. I can't add to it. I'm desperately shut up to the grace and the mercy of God. And we've sung a lot this morning, he's merciful and he is gracious. If you answered my second question, how do you know you're saved? And you said, I signed my signature on a little bit of paper. I'm not saying you're not saved, but don't depend on that. I responded to an altar call and I came to the front when we sang Just As I Am Without One Plea or some such song. I'm not saying you're not saved, but don't depend on that. I fear, I fear that there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who are depending on their signature on a bit of paper and their name's not written in heaven, who came to an altar call but didn't come to the Lord. And we need to ask that question in sincerity. How do I know I'm saved? Was it a work of God? If you're saved, you'll be seeking biblical truth. You'll be guided by the Spirit into a love of the Word of God because there you'll find Christ. And you'll develop and nurture a passion for the things of God. And they'll far outweigh and replace 
the passions and the desires of this world. You'll have a growing abhorrence of sin in your life and you'll seek to be sanctified by the Spirit. How does it happen? How did, how did, when I was 11 years of age, I believe that was on a Sunday afternoon, I believe that was when I got saved. And I don't know how that happened. I don't even remember what I prayed. I remember that the Sunday school preacher was talking about John 3 and 16, a verse that I'd known for years even then. And I don't know what I prayed, but I believe that at that time, and there's been evidence in my life since that at that time, at that moment, I passed from death to life. I was regenerated by the Spirit of God. And I don't understand how it happened. It's a little bit like the Gaither song, He Touched Me, shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. I don't know how it happened. But I know there's evidence in my life that I can see and that others have pointed out that I'm a child of God and I have that desire to follow him. Pelagianism and salvation. Now, I have been guilty of this so often. I remember standing in, well, not in this church, in the other church in McCarthy's Road, and uh, after uh, leading, there I am again, leading a person to the Lord, reporting to the church who had been praying for this lady, said, I was able to lead Sue to the Lord. I didn't lead Sue to the Lord. I told Sue the gospel. See, there's my Pelagianism. I led Sue to the Lord. What did I have to do with Sue getting saved? It was God who did that. It was the Father drawing her to Jesus. That's how Sue got saved. I didn't lead her to the Lord. I know what we mean when we say that, but that's pure Pelagianism. It really is. The other way I've been guilty of Pelagianism is in presenting the gospel pleading with sinners to repent, crafting clever ways to manipulate them into some sort of a decision. I, I can't bring people to the Lord. The Father has to draw them. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so I can present the gospel and I, and I have a responsibility to do that but I can't bring them to Jesus. The Father draws them. Let's move on, because we've got only a few minutes. Pelagianism and the Spirit. I don't need to say much about this, except that if we believe that we can live a Christian life by setting up a set of, a set of uh, prohibitions and restraints in our life, and that's how we're going to live the Christian life, then that doesn't leave much room for the Spirit, does it? That is very, that very much smacks of Pelagianism. You see, Pelagius 
um, he was renowned for his ascetism, that is, his, his restrictions as a monk. He put, imposed all sorts of restrictions on himself so that he might live a holy life. And, and we try and do that. We say, well, I'm going to try. And we forget about the work of the Spirit in our life. You see, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit. You might have heard that term when Cohen was up here talking this morning. Anybody, it's the responsibility of all Christians. They're not just the pastors and the leaders and the, and the big shots. That's the responsibility of every Christian. Be filled with the Spirit. And if we're filled with the Spirit, there will be the evidence of that in our lives. And in, in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, it shows how it will affect our worship life. It will affect our marriage. It will affect, these are all positive effects, it will affect our family life, it will affect our work life if we are filled with the Spirit. You see, the Spirit has to do the work. Paul also says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And so the work of the Spirit in our life is absolutely essential. We can't do it. Even as Christians, we can't do it on our own. We need the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. Pelagius would say, no, we have the capacity to do that ourselves. And to finish up, Pelagianism and the sexual revolution. Let me explain what I mean. In the media today, and it's in, sadly it has crept into churches across, the, across most of the world, particularly the Western world, the idea that what we are born with is what we are and so if God made me and I have some sort of attraction to the same sex, same sex attraction, that I have desires for the same gender, then if I was born with that, I believe I was born with that, then it must be good. God, God must have given it. He must have given me that gift. And so rather than it being restrained, it should be nurtured and even celebrated. And this is the sexual revolution and we're in the middle of it. And even Christians are using that sort of argument. They're saying, well... If a person was born like that, they have these desires, then it must be okay. God made them like that. Stop for a moment. What about some of the other expressions of, of the sinful nature, like covetousness, for instance? If we're born with, and we are, we're, we're covetous people, and we soon give expression to that, so that means that's good. Because I was born that way. I mean, this is a ridiculous argument. It's very Pelagian. I was born innocent. I was born without sin. I was born from the hand of God. He made me, recreated every soul anew, Pelagius says. And so if I was born that way and I have these desires which the Bible condemns or the actions that the Bible condemns, and I have those desires, I am not to nurture them nor to celebrate them. They are to be restrained, they are to be dealt with because they are part of the sinful nature, covetousness, whatever it might be. I want to finish off with a few quotes. 
Beth Moore, some of you have probably read Beth Moore, probably some of the ladies have read Beth Moore, she's a uh, current author, American author, written a lot of materials, runs big conferences and stuff. She says, knowing we're saved by grace alone, but still living under the law makes for a spiritually neurotic person. Throw that one away, think about it. John Bunyan, we go back a long time now, John Bunyan said, there can be but one will, the master in our salvation. But that shall never be the will of man, but of God. Therefore, man must be saved by grace. Another oldie, Martin Luther, faith is a living, daring, confidence in God's grace. Tim Keller, contemporary of ours, we need to remember that we are saved by grace when we fail but we need to remember it much more when we succeed. And I would conclude with the words of Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First verse I learned as a little kid. Um, what a great verse to learn. What a great verse to have implanted in our hearts. And I'm going to get down before the clock strikes 12. Thank you. 11 that would be.